I, I, I'm very concerned. You know, in British Columbia, for example, where I live, we're down to our last 3% of our iconic old growth forests left. It's disturbing, you know, that, that we have pursued the economic benefit of cutting down trees with such zeal and vigor that even in 50 years that we've transformed this province from this beautiful landscape of old forest to just a mangy hillside of, of clear cuts. And you can't get that stuff back, right? That's where the biodiversity lives. Like 80% of biodiversity is in forests. 80% of our clean water comes from forests. 80% of our carbon, terrestrial carbon, is stored in forests. And old forests have much more of all of those things than young forests, than plantations. Yeah, I know what the consequences are for species extinctions. I know the consequences for the global carbon cycle. We're driving our systems towards collapse. We need to have that social safety net, even in our economic systems, to make sure that we look after our life support systems, that it's not all about the money. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Suzanne Samard, professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia and the author of Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. Suzanne is a pioneer on the frontier of plant communication and intelligence. She's been hailed as a scientist who conveys complex technical ideas in a way that is dazzling and profound. Suzanne's TED Talks have been viewed by more than 10 million people worldwide. Together, we talked about the dangers of deforestation, how her literary and scientific proclivities intertwine, and what it's like to have a character in a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel based on her. I know you'll enjoy this conversation, but first... Join longtime Esalen instructor Dorothy Charles for Relational Gestalt Practice, The Transformative Power of Emotion, in which you'll learn basic Gestalt awareness practices to help you recognize limiting relational patterns and enhance your ability to have positive connections with others. This workshop takes place July 26th to July 30th in Big Sur. Find out more or enroll now at esalen.org workshops. And now here's my conversation with Suzanne Samard. Suzanne Samard, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Thank you for having me, Sam. I want to start out by reading a passage from the introduction of your book, The Mother Tree, that I thought might serve as a good sort of beginning to our chat. Sounds good. In mother trees, the majestic hubs at the center of forest communication, protection, and sentience die. They pass their wisdom to their kin, generation after generation, sharing the knowledge of what helps and what harms, who is friend or foe, and how to adapt and survive in an ever-changing landscape. It's what all parents do. How is it possible for them to send warning signals, recognition messages, and safety dispatches as rapidly as telephone calls? How do they help one another through distress and sickness? Why do they have human-like behaviors? And why do they work like civil societies? So I'd love to dig into some of these questions. So, so first off, Suzanne, what are, in, in the most simple terms, what are mother trees and what's their role in the forest? Yeah, they're just the biggest trees in the forest. Just, and I studied when I developed this idea, what we call uneven age forests or multi-cohort forests. That means that there's big trees and little trees and in between, you know, there's a whole age range. And, and so in those forests, they were also the oldest trees of the forest. And the reason you know, the, the big old trees are such central parts of the forest is because they have huge root systems. They have huge photosynthetic crowns. Those root systems reach far and wide and they have many points of contact. So fungal mycelium form relationships 
with the roots called mycorrhizas, literally fungus roots, and they exchange photosynthate for, uh, or the trees provide photosynthate that the mycelium uses to grow through the soil, picking up nutrients and water from the soil pores and soil crumbs and bringing them back to the tree in this market-like exchange. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of energy flowing through these old trees, right? From their converting it from light energy to chemical energy and that energy just flexing right through to the roots and that drives this mycelium and then all of the soil food web that's associated with that, that cycles carbon, cycles ni nitrogen, cycles water. It's all driven by those big old trees. I want to confess that I'm in no way a, a scientist and my knowledge of, of biology is somewhat rudimentary, even at best. So throughout this interview, please feel free to speak to me like I'm kind of like a junior high school student. Um, so that said, I want you to elaborate a little bit on these mycorrhizal networks, because it, it seems after reading your book, it seems like it's impossible to talk about trees without really talking about networks of fungi. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, all of our trees around the world form these relationships. They can't survive. They can't grow. They can't reproduce without entering into this, what we call an obligate mutualism, where the fungus benefits because it's getting energy because it doesn't have leaves to, photo to photosynthesize. And the trees can't uh, build enough root system, a vast enough root system at low cost to access nutrients. And so they enter into this symbiosis. And this symbiosis has been around since, you know, lands, or, sorry, plants emerged onto land for 400, we think 450 to maybe 700 million years ago. So it's ancient, you know, and it's necessary. So trees can't actually reproduce without having entering into this, this microbiome, really this relationship, this, this symbiosis. Some of these fungi of which there are literally thousands and thousands of species. I think there's something, an estimate, the most recent estimate is that there's 55,000 species of fungi in the world. It's probably more than that. As we develop, develop better and better molecular tools, we find more and more and more. But a good portion of those are these mycorrhizal fungi. The, the other ones are, you know, other fungi that are in that suite of 55,000 fungal, fungal species includes pathogens and saprotrophs and endophytes. But this group, this separate special group are the helper fungi. They're the ones, like I said, that grow through the soil and bring back nutrients for the trees to survive and grow and reproduce. Some of these fungi of these thousands of species are what we call generalists, host generalists. That means that they can actually link trees of, or plants of different species together. They, the mycelium grows through the soil from its point of contact or its origin, which might be an old mother tree. It will grow through the soil and then connect with a tree nearby, even of a different species. Some of the fungi are uh, specialists. That means that they only form, you know, a network or a, a, a relationship with a single species of tree or a single gen genus. And so therefore they form what we, I call intraspecific networks. So Douglas fir linked to other Douglas firs. In fact, all plants, 95% of plant families also form obligate relationships with these fungi. Um, and so trees can also link with other plants, right, that form ectomycorrhizas or endomycorrhizas or you know, so that so the, the networks are bigger than just between trees. They're actually between big trees and plants in the understory as well. And this kind of symbiosis, at what point did it become accepted within the scientific community? I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey within the field of science and within the field of forestry and how perspectives have changed. Yeah, well, you know, I think 
the first writings about mycorrhizas were in the 1800s. Uh, there was a German scientist named Franck, and he was the first person, as far as I know, who described what this relationship was. And that was from after, you know, thousands of years of people observing mushrooms and how they grow among forests and trees and trying to, you know, pondering, what does this do? And yeah, he wrote about the first mycorrhiza. So I, by the time I came on the scene, and, you know, I was born in 1960, I became, I went to graduate school to study mycorrhizas when I was 30. So um, in that you know, a long period of time, there had been quite a bit of work done in describing what these fungi looked like, you know, what did they do? Um, it was before the advent of molecular tools. So everything was very natural history-like descriptions, um, which was lovely, you know, looking through microscopes and you can see these beautiful fungi in all their colors. And there was this elaborate scheme of, of describing fungi and then trying to pinpoint what species it was based on its morphological characteristics. And then when I started graduate school, that's when molecular tools started being developed. And now we have whole different methodologies. Um, and so, you know, through that period of time, the field of mycorrhizal science developed and I kind of developed along with it. You know, when I started out, they were really mostly looking at, you know, how do we colonize seedlings in nurseries, right? Is this important to grow seedlings in nurseries or in agricultural fields? They were sort of thinking about it more from a utilitarian point of view of how can we improve our crop growth? It kind of chugged along, but not that much attention to it. And then in the in Oregon and also in California in the Pacific Northwest, people started looking more at the natural. What what are the roles in natural ecosystems? And so there was a lot of work done at Oregon State University where I came, you know, where I did my grad studies. Um, just you know, knowing that in old growth forests there are certain kinds of fungi that are prolific, um, and that was at the time when Jerry Franklin was talking about new forestry and you know what does it mean for conserving whole ecosystems and um, and the integrity of ecosystems. And that's when I think really people started to understand the crucial role of this incredible diversity in the in the soil and how it was important to the nutrient cycles, the nitrogen cycle, and so on. And so yeah, I, I, that's when I started when that you know, gaining that, that, that knowledge of what, what the role of fungi were in ecosystems. Hmm. Yes. And, and you, you spend about the, the beginning portions of your book, you kind of bring us to you having a job as kind of a green 20 year old uh, with a logging company in British Columbia, late 1970s, one of the only women on the job. And at this time, loggers were replacing diverse forests with homogenous plantations. Mm -hmm. um, so talk to me a little bit about that and how that kind of butts up against this uh, deep knowledge of the mycorrhizal network. Yeah, you know, so so I grew up in old growth forests, right? These are inland rainforests where I live right now, actually, in the, in the Selkirk Mountains, the Monastery Mountains. These are, you know, huge, where huge old trees grow, cedars and hemlocks. They're a lot like the West Coast forests. And my grandfather and my great-grandfather and my dad were horse loggers. And so I knew the forests as, you know, I, did, I just lived in these forests with them. Um, we spent our summers on loggers' houseboats and were, you know, I, I knew what these, I, I grew up around these trees and selective logging. And then when I became a, a forester and I got my first job, it was in the forest industry. And yeah, it was clear-cut logging where they basically took everything. They didn't select a white pine or select a cedar tree, you know, and cut and take a few days to cut it down and, and drag, have a horse drag it to a flume. No, it was like, okay, we're going to mow down whole valleys and replace them, like what you said, with these plantations of planted trees that were mo basically monocultures. 
I found that this was really quite offensive, but I, I was just trying to keep my job, right? And I was just so happy to have a job and that I was able to get a job doing something I loved. And, and so I wasn't at that point thinking, oh, I'm going to be trying to contest this. It was more like, oh, this is different. <laughs> and then learning, right? Then just being open to the learning process. There's this line in your book, you, you write, eventually, my childhood was shouting at me. The forest is an integrated whole. So talk to me a little bit about how you came to this kind of perception. Yeah, I mean, you know, as kids, right, we, we're short, we crawl around in the woods, we're glow to the ground. That means you spend a lot of time climbing over logs and building forts and dips and tree forts. And, and so that's what I got to know, like in these old forests, where I played with my brother and sister, we were just kids of the forest. And, and, and yeah, I mean, roots and bear dens under roots and holes and trees that you could hide in and, you know, climb up trees and build a fort with sticks and make a raft and raft over to the next bay and go fishing. And that's how I grew up. And so it was an integrated whole. It, it was like everything was entwined and there was such diversity. Although at the time I didn't say, oh, that's diversity. I went, oh, you know, this is fun. <laughs> and so, yeah, it just was part of my DNA. It was part of my blood and bones. It was just what I knew. These places were my home. And then, you know, when I for- started in the, in the forest industry, they were clear cutting around this, you know, where I grew up, this Mabel Lake, which is where we spent so much of our time and clear cuts of these old forests that were where I played. And I'm just like, this is, they're disconnecting this connected place. That's how I saw it, right? They're ripping it apart and they're recreating it in some other weird image that is not what what was there before. These huge cathedrals were being reduced to these little rows of pines. And yeah, that, that was just the beginning of me really trying to figure this out. What was connected, what's not. Yes, connected. There, there it is. I mean, I, I think in, in a certain sense, your book is really all about connection. I'd love to ask you to kind of elaborate later when you're at the forest ministry, you do some experiments, one notable one with birch and dugfir trees. It's about the transfer of nutrients from one species to another. And I'd love to hear you kind of uh, speak about this. Yeah, so so one of the practices, the practice of disconnection, <laughs> the standard practices were you clear cut the forest, then you site prep it to make it nice and uniform and get rid of, you know, too much slash. And then you plant it with fast growing early successional species. And then you get rid of the competitors, which are the native plants or anything that's not a commercial conifer, which in my neck of the woods was Douglas or lodgepole pine or spruce. Those were the only three still to the, this day. That's pretty much what we do. And anything else was considered a competitor to get to get rid of it. And then that would be followed maybe later by another weeding process. You know, I know it, you know, in in some places you weed more than once. You can even do weeding pre-planting and with herbicides, they call them pre-emergent herbicides and then plant and then post-emergent herbicides. And and really, you know, what what you end up with this are these clean forests. And I saw that there was this pathogens that were spreading through these cleansed forests killing the Douglas firs, which is what they were trying to grow for profit. And, and I thought, you know, maybe these birch and, and where they left the birches, you know, before they had weeded them out, they, they were growing great, right? But they got infected afterwards. And so then I thought, there's something about these birches that's, you know, we don't understand this. We think they're just competitors, but there's more to the story. 
And so that's when I decided I was going to do this experiment. And I was going to build on the work of David Reed, who had done this work, grown pine seedlings in these little shoebox like things that had glass windows. And he would label one of the pine seedlings with carbon 14 and could see it moving from one seedling to the next through a mycorrhizal mycorrhizal fungus that he had inoculated with these two pines with. And so there was this like root between them. And and so I thought, this was in the lab. Does this happen in our forest? Is this what we're doing? We're disconnecting these linkages. And so I looked and I, I did an experiment where I grew birch and fir together. The idea that birch would be, you know, shading the Douglas fir. And so I shaded Douglas fir to these different degrees trying to emulate what we saw in nature and then labeled my two trees with different isotopes and watch where the label went. Um, and it did move back and forth between paper birch and Douglas fir through the mycorrhizal network that were linking them together. And the more Douglas fir was shaded by the birch, the more birch sent over to Douglas fir. And so this was like, this was a revelation to me, right? That, you know, these trees, they're competing for sure, but they're also collaborating at the same time. Yeah, that yes, paper birch does grow taller and faster, and it has big leaves that are full of nitrogen that fix carbon at a really fast rate. But some of that carbon, it's not just for itself, it's actually nourishing the whole ecosystem through its network, including the trees that it's connected to. Suzanne, this seems like such a, a wild breakthrough. What was your personal kind of, how did that land with you when you discovered this? Was this like Copernicus, you know, like, whoa. Yeah, it was. It was amazing. I mean, I didn't know what to expect because, you know, and I was just a young grad student. I was working with these creatures that were invisible to the eye almost. You had to have a microscope to see them, the mycorrhizas. I was working with isotopes that you couldn't see. I was I was like going on a lot of faith that what David Reed had done a decade earlier that I could sort of find in my forest. It was like looking for a needle in a haystack. And so, you know, when it came to looking at my data, I knew that I could find nothing at all, right? It could be all for nothing. Like this was kind of almost like curiosity driven research, but it was also research that was very applied in a sense and that I was applying it to a real situation. I was trying to solve a real problem, but it was basic in that nothing could show up. And then when when I did get the data back and I saw that, yeah, it's moving back and forth and holy, holy cow, it's actually, you know, a huge amount is going into the shaded Douglas fir. I knew that I was onto something really big here. <laughs> so there's a book that I read last year called The Overstory by Richard Powers, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm doing research for this interview that we're doing today. And I'm like, hold on a second. Is this character of Patricia Westerford based on, on Suzanne? Yeah. So first I'll ask you that. Yeah. Well, I have never talked to Richard Powers, but I hear he's a wonderful man. Um, And um, I have heard interviews or read interviews that he did base his character, that character, Patricia, partly on my character. Um, It's a a combination, I think, of different people. Uh, I think, um, yeah, there's like three of us, I think. But yeah, it was, you know, the, I think because my TED Talks have been out there, I've written quite a bit. I've got, my story was out um, and so he had lots of resources to look at and try to piece together this character. And it's, it's, it's kind of cool. I mean, the, you know, the difficulties that she had that she went through and there's some differences for sure. Like, well, well, that, well, that's what I was going to kind of bring up to you in, in the book, the overstory, this uh, character, Dr. Westerford, I mean, she is ostracized from the scientific community. And I wanted to ask you if your experiments caused you any distress or if people pushed back against them. Yeah, it did for sure. Because it was published in Nature, I 
I had the academics critics, and then I had the applied forester critics. I had two sides, and I was having ba- you know I was having my children at that time. In fact, when when my paper came out, um, it was right around the time that my daughter was born, and my first daughter. And so I was grappling with being a, a new mom and with all these critiques that were something coming in like waterfalls on me and from two sides. And so the academic side, it was, it was more like, you know, in, in this field, like, it's like there were the forest foresters, the managers, the agriculture type foresters, and then there were the forest scientists and the foresters were really deep into this you know, competition reigns, reigns supreme in forests, that that's what structures what forests look like, that we need to manage the competition. And they developed all these practices around that. Um, and then there were the forest scientists who were saying, actually, the forest is like, like that's when Jerry Franklin was, you know, developing new forestry. And there were a lot of people looking at how forests worked and they would clash together. And it was almost like there were the, the competition people and then there were the facilitation people. And they didn't see eye to eye. There was a lot of fights going on. And so I kind of was in the middle of that. I stepped into that. And, and I was trying to say, oh, there's both going on here. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I don't know why it is that people like this us and them, them thing, they try to make it, in, you know, a single, simple concept, and then we're going to throw rocks at that, when actually it's, it's more complicated than that. So I had that. And then I had the foresters, who didn't want to change their practices thank you very much. We know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need you to tell us how to do things differently. And so basically what they did is they mostly ignored it, but they also tried to, because when I, when I talked about applying it in the actual practices of brushing and weeding, that's what we call it up in Canada, but the spraying of herbicides, you know, the getting rid of the native plants, the cleansing of the forest, they didn't want to change that practice and they still have not changed that practice. And, and so there was a huge amount of pushback in me trying to talk about the interpretation of this work for that application. And so ultimately it led me to leaving that ministry of forest, the, the forest service back then. Um, I mean, they were downsizing anyway, but I was looking for a way to get out because it was too difficult, right? It was just too much. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, so so you went rogue. You you were like an independent scientist for a while, or what, what? Yeah, tell me about your path. Well, I, I, you know, you know when governments change and they go from you know liberal to conservative, and then they downsize like academic departments. They downsize their science. They don't, you know, they they decide that science isn't, you know, worth funding. <laughs> we don't need to know about that stuff. That happened in Canada or in British Columbia at that time. And so a lot of the forest scientists were being told, you know, you should leave if you can. And so, because we're going to downsize here. And so there was a job opportunity at the University of British Columbia for a professorship and I applied and I got that job. Mm -hmm. And so then that opened up huge opportunities for, for me. And suddenly, you know, I wasn't doing research to support forest policy. I was doing more curiosity driven research. And, and of course, I always cared about what it meant for forests. So my research always had this basic and applied component to it. Mm. You know, okay, I can do this basic research looking at how trees are connected, but really, what does it mean in forests? And so my program developed along those lines. And, and I, you know, as much as money I could get, I could get for my grants, I was able to do that work. And I wasn't receiving a lot of pushback. Um, other than their usual route of academic publishing and peer review, then sure, but that's that's okay. 
Did you know that Esalen has a scholarship program? Yes, we do. We believe that money should never stand in the way of human potential. The Esalen Scholarship Program features awards of up to 90% of workshop tuition and accommodation, a scholarship for qualifying travel, a convenient online application process, and a mission-driven goal to increase diversity. So apply today at esalen.org slash scholarship fall 20. One strand that I found in reading your book and in sort of examining your work is that, I mean, this science is is very in vogue right now. Your TED Talk has, has about 2 million views to it. There was a huge New York Times spread on your work. The overstory is essentially a Pulitzer Prize winning novel based on this concept of communication, right? Within the, the species, it's captured everybody's imagination in a very deep way. So I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about, I would say, human behavior to the, this, the cooperation, what that means for sort of us with the planet. Yeah, um, I, I, it's a hugely important concept, and that's a hugely important discussion to have. Capitalism, Darwinianism, they, they were developed around the same time, or Darwin was writing his books as capitalism was becoming an, a political ideology, um, and there was, you know, influences on both sides. And, uh, and of course, capitalism got adopted, you know, writ large by American politics, as well as in Western Europe, the colonization of the United States um, was really about independence from the from the church and the crown and, and to develop capitalism in North America. Whereas I'm from Canada, Canada is a little bit different. It's not, I mean, we still had a, we have a colonial society as well built on capitalism, but we have a stronger social safety net here in the sense that, you know, we do a little bit more, we've got better social, we've got social medicine, I guess you could call it that. We have, you know, a social welfare system. We, we have, um, we follow, we're, we're better at following instructions, I think, than, whereas Americans, it's built on independence, right? And rights and, um, you know, the right to have all, you know, the bare arms to, to free speech. We have that too, but it, it sort of got taken to a more extreme level in the U.S. politics than in Canada. So I can make those contrasts, right? Because I went to grad school in the U.S. and I've lived there and I live, in, but I'm Canadian. Yeah. So what does it mean for society? I think you can see, like, take COVID, for, for example. COVID, the American society struggled with, you know, with dealing with COVID, because people didn't want to wear masks or they didn't want to, or even accept that it was a real thing. Um, whereas in Canada, we were just sort of said, okay, if you're going to tell us to wear a mask, we're going to do that. It just, it just, or you want us to get vaccinated? Like in BC, you know, we're 75% vaccinated. There's like, people don't really say, oh, I don't want to get vaccinated. It's like, okay, it's good. It's good for all of us to do that. There's some small lessons. Is there, are there lessons? There's different ways of doing things, I guess. And what do the trees tell us about that? Well, the trees are a social forest. They they have this network below ground that's like their immunization system, right? They're networked together where they're they're acting for the social good, as well as for you know individuals. But the social good is important. You know that all the trees are linked together below ground and sharing resources and passing things around, messages, information shows that it's a complex society built on give and take. And and I think that 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 kind of society where there's give and take works right if it's you need all of those kinds of sophisticated interactions to keep the society civil 
so I think that this pattern that we've discovered in forests of collaboration is important. I think it's, it tr is transmutable across all kinds of society, all kinds of complex systems, including social systems. It helps, you know, it helps to know that there's a social safety net there. It, it helps raise up the health of society, just like it raises up the health and integrity and productivity of the forest. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Suzanne, what is your reaction when you read about or experience the deforestation that's going on in the world at a grand scale? It, it makes, me, makes me really sad, actually. It's hard to deal with. I, I, I'm very concerned. You know, in British Columbia, for example, where I live, I grew up in a province of old growth forests, as I mentioned. Now it's a province of clear cuts. And uh, we're down to our last 3% of our iconic old growth forests left. Um, that's a pretty paltry amount, and it's it's pretty it's disturbing, you know that that we have pursued the economic benefit of cutting down trees with such zeal and vigor that even in fifty years that that we've transformed this province from this beautiful landscape of old forest to just a mangy hillside of of clear cuts. And you can't get that stuff back, right? That's where the biodiversity lives. Like 80% of biodiversity is in forests. 80% of our clean water comes from forests. 80% of our carbon, terrestrial carbon, is stored in forests. And old forests have much more of all of those things than young forests, than plantations. Yeah, I know what the consequences are for species extinctions. I know the consequences for the global carbon cycle. I know the consequences for the hydrologic cycle, and and I know it's not it's not great, right? We're we're driving our systems towards collapse, especially on top of climate change. You know, we're exacerbating that, and so I would like to see us stop already, right? We need to stop cutting down our last old growth forests because they are, you know, we call them the lungs of the earth. They are the lungs of the earth. You know, they breathe in, they breathe out, we breathe in. Basically, they transpire oxygen and water, and we breathe in that oxygen. We're one and the same with them. And we're just, you know, cutting ourselves off in spite of ourselves. Yeah, we need to do a lot of serious thinking about this. And I would like to, you know, it's the economic driver, like it's, it's, it's the shareholders, it's the CEOs that don't even go to these forests, right? They don't even live in these forests. And, you know, I work with the Haida people in Haida Gwaii, and they talk about huge barges taking their old growth forests, cut down, and they're shipped off to Asia. And, they're, and what they're left with are clear cuts. What they're left with are no cedars to build canoes, no cedars to build totems, no cedars to build longhouses, 90 or 70% unemployment while logs are being shipped off to another country. It's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. And it's because we've got, we let it, run amok. We let capitalism sort of say, oh, it can take care of it. No, it's not going to take care of it. You know, it's not. We need to have that social safety net, even in our economic systems, to make sure that we look after our life support systems, that it's not all about the money. Yeah, I was listening to the Intelligence Squared uh, podcast where you were interviewed and um, a reader had a really interesting kind of point or question brought up about, I think it was Canada selling selling wood that would be used as wood pellets to be burned in the mm -hmm. UK. So the UK and Europe are trying to, you know, de decarbonize their energy sector, getting off fossil fuels. And so one of the solutions was bioenergy. Um, and so that developed into a market in Canada 
with I think that the intent was to take whatever wood scraps were left after logging and turn them into pellets. But you know, there's always nefarious things going on. And so they start now they're, you know, talking about logging the boreal forest to create wood pellets for burning in the UK. It makes absolutely no sense because you know, they did they did the carbon calculation. It's not even close. You'd be better off burning fossil fuels than cutting down the boreal forest, letting all that CO2 emit from those deep, deep carbon rich soils, shipping them across the world with fossil fuels to burn in as pellets and wood stoves. It's like, we need to give our heads a shake, right? Nobody did the math mm. before we started on this industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, when you look into the future of the environment, which, yes, looks disastrous by every (laughs) account, is there anything that you feel hopeful about with regards to the lessons you've learned, the work that you've done about connection within the forest? Yeah, I do. I don't I don't mean to be so negative about it. all. It's just um, it's definitely the the hopeful thing is that these systems are resilient, right, that that they do regenerate. I go into my mother tree project and I see there's alternatives to taking everything that if you leave these old trees that these systems do reorganize and they do it quickly they're 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 wired to do that right they're they are built to heal so regeneration happens quickly if you leave old trees their seed sheds on the the seeds fall on the forest floor the seedlings germinate they hook into these old networks and they become trees quickly diverse forests so they do recover the systems have incredible ability to recover I've even, I've worked in mine spoils where you think it's a complete disaster. You bring in a bit of soil and some seeds and the system recovers, right? You create a nucleus and it recovers and it grows and it grows. And so the, you know, any kind of complex system is like, is meant to regenerate. They're regenerative systems and they can, it can happen quickly. If you give it the right ingredients, it can be a quick recovery. So yeah, no, I'm very hopeful because if we can just brain up a little bit as human beings and, and, and stop being so exploitive and shift over to being a regenerative society, a productive society, instead of just a, a consumptive society, then we can help these systems recover. Mm. You know, we do have all the, we have all the ingredients and we have all you know, the smarts to do it. We can do it. You choose to write about your battle with breast cancer. What was, what was it like to weave that into your story? You know, I, I I, like I, I've been a scientist my whole life. I, I love to write, but I always wrote science journals, which are very prescriptive in a way. You know, they have a they have a a method, and you know they're very succinct. You can't. There's no room for for explaining much, right? Other than, you know, you don't put yourself in it. Um, and the reason they do that is so it's easy to review it. It's easy to read it. It's very concise. You don't have to fill up lots of journal pages. But I wanted to get back to that, right? To, to, and I wanted to show that, that science isn't just, you know, it's, it's a human thing, right? It comes from human beings with lives. And that the things that we do in science is very much our own story as well. Like we ask the questions that we're interested in. So I wanted to show that. But I also wanted people to read this science because I thought it was really important. I think it's really important for us to reconnect with nature. I think that this is the fundamental issue that once we can do that, then we'll start getting on a, this regenerative path that I talked about. And, and to help people get back to it, because we have created this society, you know, really rapidly, this global society, high population growth. We've gotten used to certain, you know, working within that construct. Um, and and some, sometimes, you know, getting moved away from nature, those natural connections. And I, and I really feel like 
that is what we need to do is get back to it. And then we can solve the problems. And so I wanted people to read about this connection to nature without having to work at it. I wanted them to learn the science without having to think that they were working at it or that they might just drop the book and say, I don't like science. I'm not, it's not for me. But if they read my story along with it, yes. they have to absorb it. They just absorb it, right? It's just, oh yeah, I learned some science along the way. I think it's tr- it's training. I mean, if I were to pick up a medical journal, for example, I wouldn't be able to read it. The language is so dense. It's so you know obtuse. You know, there's whole words they've invented to describe things that nobody else knows about. It's the same in forest science. You know, you you can't just go read that stuff. Um, and so it needs to be interpreted. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do here: is interpret it so anybody can understand this this incredible stuff. Well, that's so great. So you've been able to use sort of your facility with the English language to help people understand science. How about how were you able to use your chops as a scientist to make the process of writing a memoir more easy? You know, one thing that I did, um, so I, like I, I've published over 200 journal articles in my, in my career, and I'm still publishing. I'm still a scientist. I'm still very active. Um, and that gave me the credibility to write in this way. Right. And you'll notice at the back of the book, I have a lot of citations of the, the sources, the, the science. And most of that science I cite is, is the work I built off of and my work as well. So that so that, you know, if I sort of if I write about, you know, the, you know, the experiments using isotopes and I don't I have written about it in the book in a completely way different way than I wrote, write about it in my journal articles, but I have the license to interpret it that way because I know it. I did that work. Um, and I know how far I can stretch it to help people understand. Um, and yeah, I, and I, I thought that was a really important thing to do. And I, I have all the, I have the creds, I have the articles. Now here's the, here's the interpretation. And often scientists don't get to that interpretation part. And so then their articles sit in journals and it gets, some of it gets used, but most of it doesn't get used. <laughs> and I, I felt that I really wanted my work to get out there and be known and be used. Mm-hmm. So Suzanne, there was this feature that I mentioned earlier in the New York Times, December of last year, about you when you said plants perceive lots of things, why not us? So I want to ask you a little bit about how you think about plant consciousness. Like I was interviewing a woman recently about psychedelics. We, we spoke about ayahuasca, which is mm-hmm. a psychedelic derived in part from a vine. And she spoke in very literal terms about the plant receiving wisdom from the plant, even receiving mm-hmm. writing advice from the plant. So just want to bat this question over to you about plant consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done ayahuasca, but I don't think I need to. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd love to, but I, I just haven't had the opportunity to do that. I, I already have these connections with plants myself, right? I, I talk to them. I, I, I remember, um, I tell this story, I've told this before, but I went to a conference and there was a shaman there. And um, and I found out that most of the people that there had done ayahuasca, but we weren't doing ayahuasca at this conference in Wisconsin, which isn't an ayahuasca kind of place. But um, but we did a meditation and, a, and, a, and the shaman sort of um, with the plants and she did drumming and we were to converse with our favorite plant. And so I was having this experience with Douglas fir and it was immediate. And I was inside that the heartwood of that tree. Right. It didn't take anything because I work with them so much. I know them so well. And so, yeah, I mean, I, my consciousness was blended with that tree and, and I go and I talk to my trees every day. Right. To me, it's just like, okay, we just need to open up our minds a little bit. Right. 
Um, and, and of course, people who use words like consciousness get criticism for anthropomorphism. But, you know, these trees have got huge agency in their lives, right? They, they, um, they're perceptive, they're responsive, they're, um, they're innovative, they're adaptive. You know, they, they behave, you know, they have behaviors, they, they learn things, they move in different directions. If that didn't work, they'll do that. Mm. Um, they have memories, you know, it's recorded, recorded in their genes and in their, in their growth rings. They have all of these things that when you put it all together, it's a meaningful life mm. <laughs> with agency. And is that consciousness? Well, I guess you can, I'll leave that up to you to decide, you know, I guess it's, um, to me, it's, it's not a big leap, but they don't have brains. They don't have nervous systems. <laughs> and, you know, the critics will say, you can't do that because they don't have brains and nervous systems. Um, and that's a human word. Well, okay. Then that's your limitation. <laughs> well, maybe this is a, <laughs> a, maybe this is a silly question. I'll ask it anyway. Have you ever fallen in love with a tree? There, there's a tree that saves you in the book from a grizzly when you're 22. I have a lot of trees that I love so much. I mean, I, I, I go on a trip. There's this trail across from my house. I go on it as often as I can a, f a few times a week. And there are trees on that trail that are my friends. You know, there's this group of about, about a dozen ponderosa pines. And there's one right beside the trail that I always stop at and talk to. Um, there's another one partway up. It's a great big old Douglas fir with huge branches that reach out as, you know, wide as my house and uh i talk to that tree pat them talk to them there's the bears there's the bears that live there the mama and the cubs that are always on that mountain site every year of course different generations of them but it's this is a home place and so these are my this is my home yeah do you feel hopeful at all in sort of swaying the canadian government for example to to save old growth forests i i do i'm feeling more hopeful now of course we're back down to our three last three percent, which seems to be a common theme in uh, civilizations that they cut down their forest, climate changes, and then the system, the civilization collapses. I, I hope that doesn't happen. I mean, Jared Diamond has lots of accounts of this happening over and over again in in social systems. But um, I, I feel like there's a change right now. There's been uh, uh, there's lots of protests going on about in, in Canada about cutting down our last old growth forests. The government is being resistant and saying, oh, no, we're going to, this is the way it is, and we're going to do this anyway. Um, but but I feel like, you know, this is a bit different. You know, hundreds of people are getting arrested. In Canada, we're very concerned about truth and reconciliation with our First Nations people. Um, it's been a rocky road. I would say they would say it's been ineffective. Um, but their voice is getting, they're finding their voice again. And, um, and they have stewardship over the land, right? That is their, their rights and titles still are not worked out in the government of Canada, but in their own governance, in their own history, their rights and title all lie there. And so it's just a matter to me of finding that voice, expressing it, honoring it, and their voice will stand, stands for the forest as well. Um, and so if we do are really truthful about truth and reconciliation, that will help us save our forests of what, what remains of our forests. And then for the other forests that have already been harvested or, you know, we, we can practice, re, you know, returning them to an old growth forest, letting them grow to great old ages instead of cutting them down in 50 years. 
um, leaving things behind the old logs and the old mother trees and the plants. Mm. I, I have hope. Suzanne Samard, your book is Finding the Mother Tree. It's available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Thank you, Sam. That was a lovely interview. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Michelle McCrary and Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. Join us for the Transformational Enneagram, Mindfulness, Insight, and Experience, a new workshop led by Russ Hudson that will emphasize recognizing the ways that each of the nine Enneagram types play out in our own personalities. It will combine psychological insight into the inner workings of the types with meditation practices and exercises to lead you toward a more direct experience of qualities of essence such as presence, clarity, compassion, and joy. The workshop will run from August 8th to 13th at Esalen in Big Sur. Register now at esalen.org workshops. 